Episode 8 of the Pilot to Pilot Podcast takes off now. What is going on, aviators, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Kurt Leishner. You might know him by his Instagram name of Stabilizer Motion, where he posts some of the funniest content I have followed. I can't wait to share this episode with you guys as we go into a lot of information. We're going to talk about how doing odd jobs around the airport helped him fund his training and build hours. Talk about how to treat yourself as a business. Look at yourself as a CEO of your piloting career. Talk about why a four-year degree isn't as relevant as it once was, but it's still very important. We talk about why it's important to keep updating your applications at all times. We talk about why it's necessary for you to find a balance between being humble and assertive as a first officer. We talk about the most dangerous hour mark of being a pilot. We talk about why it's important to fly a turboprop before you get into jets if you have the chance and much, much more. I can't wait to share this episode with you guys. Kurt and I really had a great episode and it's really gonna impact a lot of people. I think that this is essential for anyone that's getting into being a pilot or even getting hired by a regional, getting hired by a major, getting hired by a fractional that's gonna be sitting right seat as we dive into what it takes to be a good first officer. I hope you guys truly enjoy this podcast and I can't wait to share it with you guys. Just wanna go and give a quick shout out to one of my favorite aviation companies, Wing Boss. Wing Boss has some of the coolest aviation merchandise you can get not to mention their awesome fitted wing boss patriotic logo hat where they have the american flag as a logo it is so cool go ahead and check it out at wingbosstf.com or head out to their instagram wingboss it is some awesome merchandise and it's a great company so go ahead and support them if you guys are new to the pilot to pilot podcast please go ahead and check us out on instagram at pilot to pilot we'd love to hear your feedback let us know via dm via comment You can leave us a review on iTunes if you want to. We love hearing from you guys. It helps us create the best content we can possibly create. So go ahead and check us out there. And we're going to be partnering with Wing Boss to host a giveaway. We're going to be giving away a hat from Wing Boss. All you need to do to enter is follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our podcast, and leave us a review on our podcast on our iTunes page. So go ahead and please do those things. We can't wait to see who gets this hat. And without further ado, Kurt Leishner. Hey, Kurt, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. No problem, man. I'm glad that you can come on. Uh, I reached out to you probably, what, like not even 24 hours ago, and here we are? Yeah, I think it was about eight hours ago. <laughs> That's awesome. That's uh, got to love Instagram and how it connects people. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, cool. So let's go ahead and get started. The uh, first question I have for you today is, why did you want to be a pilot? Like, What was the inspiration for becoming a pilot? I don't think I really had like a specific inspiration. I was basically just born with it in my blood. And I, you know, it's just as a baby, as like, as soon as I could talk, I was basically like, I want to be a pilot. This is what I'm going to do. I was always interested in airplanes. I always had like the latest Microsoft flight simulator, which so like kids now would look so stupid. But back in like (laughs) 95, you know, I was playing flight sim all the time, like building little model airplanes and reading books and like I would sit in like math class and like sketch out airports and stuff. Um, So I was like totally geeky about it. And I never really had anyone in my family that flew or whatever, but it was just, it's always been who I am. So basically I just like grew up like that. And my dad knew I had an interest in it. So he started to kind of research, you know, how to become a pilot, I guess, like the best way to become an airline pilot or air force or whatever. Um, so when I was 15, he took me for my first flight lesson for, I think it was like my birthday present or something. And I was just hooked after that and, uh, started washing airplanes out at Monroe airport. 
Um, EQI, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Monroe and then Wilgrove Airport as well in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and just worked every day after school all summer. I had kids from school that I hired to come out there, um, just clean airplanes, cut the grass. And I just did that all through high school and, you know, earned all my ratings and basically had my commercial by, you know, when I turned 18. No way. And, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, got out of high school and started flight instructing that summer. Dang. And yeah, so... That's basically how I got into it. Yeah, you don't hear about people getting their commercial before they're 18. <laughs> Not before. It was yeah. like when I was eight, like when after 18. After I turned 18. Yeah. Like it was Even like then. senior. I think it was the summer after my senior year. I got like commercial and CFI all around that summer. That's awesome. So, you weren't yeah. messing around. You really did know you want to be a pilot. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just who I am. I, I didn't even think of having any other career besides this. That's cool. And kudos to your dad too for recognizing that. And I know like when you don't come from a family of aviation or know people that are in aviation and like people have no idea how to research becoming a pilot or where the first step is. They don't understand how easy it is and how you just go to an airport and you can just start yes. flying like right now. Like it's not literally hard we at just all. we just pulled up to the airport, walked up to the FBO and said, I want to take a flight lesson. And it's, it was that, but you're right. Like, especially back then the internet wasn't quite like as good as it is now. And there wasn't as much information. Um, but I'm so thankful that I had my dad to kind of help me out. I mean, he helped me out here and there financially, uh, too. He would kind of like match what I could do, uh, washing the airplanes. So it really helps to have supportive parents, but it's not necessary. I mean, nowadays you can get on the internet and Google it and find out all the information in five seconds and, you know, and go out to a flight school and just start talking and meeting people. That's really the first step. Yeah, for sure. First step is just Google local flight schools and call yeah. them. And if you find one, if you think that you made a connection with one, go visit them, go see what's going on, go look at their planes, go look at their hangar space, go interact with them, see how they treat you, see how they treat their students. And that's going to give you some kind of indication of how your training is going to go. Exactly. That's exactly. awesome. So you took your first flight when you were 15. When did you truly start your training? Was it like right after that or was it a couple yeah, years after that? Yeah, I started that? doing, because I knew I could solo at 16, but I was also really strapped for cash. I mean, I only made so much washing planes. So right. I could. I took about an hour lesson a week, maybe every other week for that entire year that I was 15 um, so that I would have, I mean, I was ready to solo before I was 16, but um, you know, you had to wait. So I think it was like, I think I weathered out on my 16th birthday, but then like right after that, so like around my birthday soloed. And then uh, again, I had a whole nother year. I had to wait to get my license. So I just kind of like paced it out a little bit, just enough to stay proficient. Um, and then, you know, took my private on my 17th and instrument a little bit after that. And then commercial 18 and, and CFIs. I got up to like CFI, CFII and MEI while nice. I was 18. That's um, incredible. That's awesome. What flight school did you do it out of? Um, the private was Wilgrove Airport, which is still there. It's like a little tiny mom and pop airport um, that's been there since the 60s. And just hanging out there as a kid, I had I met so many um, old airport bums that <laughs> yeah. basically like mentored me, um, taught me how to act, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, um, and, and they just... They just pointed me in the right direction. They helped me out a lot. They 
they gave me a lot of opportunities to like ferry airplanes and, uh, you know, fly. Once I got my commercial, I flew like photographers out of there and just did little odd jobs to build hours. But yeah, the main thing was like just being at the airport, um, and, and, and different airports in your community too, not just one, like try to meet the whole community because like aviation in, in the United States is such a tiny community. You need to start really building a reputation as early as you can. And oh, just like, sure. you know, meeting as many people as you can, making a good impression and the opportunities will just flow to you. Like right. if you're a good person and you're sincere with them and you have something to offer as far as like, hey, I'll wash your plane. Can you take me on this business trip you have in your barren or whatever? I'll just sit right seat. Just let me see it. It's cool. Exactly. Exactly. And that's how I got every single job that I've gotten so far has just been through uh, networking, basically. It's kind of like uh, you, you're, on, you're your own business almost. Like you're the CEO of your career and it's up to you to reach out to people, connect with people. If you're lazy, you're not going to take off. You're not going to get to where you want to go. You're just going to kind of follow the footsteps and maybe not get your dream job. But if you actually go out and interact with people and like you said, do the dirty work, go wash airplanes. Like there's nothing glorifying about washing airplanes. It's not the easiest thing to do and it's a pain in the butt and you really don't get that much money to do it. I did it one time for uh, my flight school at Arrowwood and it took me forever. My dad even helped me out. And when I got paid, I was like, that was not worth that. (laughs) (laughs) So I completely can sympathize with you for washing airplanes and paying like it is it's such a great way to go meet people and it's a great way to just show people how much you really care about what you're getting into and that you're willing to do whatever it takes to achieve your dream. Exactly. I totally agree. So with your um, private pilot training, did you have any difficulties at all training? Did you pick it up pretty fast? Were you good, good like were you a natural at flying or was it hard for you? I think that um, this may sound silly, but I put in so much time on Microsoft Flight Sim and I know <laughs> that's like a, a meme or something like, oh, you you know, like, but like, seriously, the amount of time that I flew on the computer did carry over. And especially when you're a kid, you learn a lot faster when you're 16 or 17. I mean, um, even when I was an instructor, it was nice to have like a 15 year old because they just were like a sponge for knowledge. Um, so I didn't really have difficulties picking it up because I had, it's all I had done. So, I mean, I maybe had some bad habits I needed to break, but uh, but no, I, I, I feel like it, it came pretty naturally. That's awesome. More naturally than it does now. Actually. <laughs> That's so. awesome though, because I know there's a lot of sim geeks out there and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It's what we call ourselves av geeks and you can be a sim geek. There's nothing wrong yes. with it, but like you can, that can be the first start to your career. Like go buy there, Microsoft simulator, go buy X plane. Like it is crazy how realistic that stuff can be right yes. now. Like it's yes. not flying an airplane, but it's as close as it can get. And it's significantly cheaper. And you can kind of familiarize with the cockpit, the controls, what happens like when you turn left, what happens when you use a rudder, what happens when you do this. So it's not a bad way to go to start out. So cool. So private pilot training went pretty well. What Talk about the transition to IFR. Because I know you can't, that might be a little bit harder to simulate, get the realism of flying an actual approach or flying. It is. I mean, I still remember, it's been a while now, probably like 15 years, but I can still remember I flew a, I did it in a 172 RG. Like we didn't have like G1000, all that kind of stuff back then. Um, I think that's a good way to go to if anybody's listening that is starting out. I think that you really should get a, get down the fundamentals first. 
of instrument flying with a six pack, like just your basic airplane, because without the fundamentals, you can go to, you know, a glass cockpit or whatever, but I've, I feel like you don't have the base knowledge that you should to be a well-rounded, safe pilot. That's just my opinion. People will probably disagree with me. <laughs> no, I, compl- I actually completely agree with you. I've never had a six. I've only had a six pack. I've never had glass cockpit to this day, and I'm flying old PC-12s right now that still have a six pack in them. So. Exactly. You yeah. never know what job is going to come up. Like I never thought I was going to fly an MD-80. You know, and here I, you know what I mean. So I only flew glass cockpit airliners and then i get an md80 and it's like wow i'm back in in the 60s right i'm not gonna lie i was looking at your instagram page i was like i didn't even know airliners had all those instruments anymore like what the heck so so without the back to your original question is like i remember it being a very stressful rating to earn but it's for a reason because it's it's basically life and death i mean you really need to know what you're doing Um, and I'm glad that I had the instructors that I did to kind of make it challenging on me and not just like, I'm not just buying my rating. I'm earning it. I'm like, I'm being challenged. I, I I don't know. I just remember like nights in that 172 RG in North Carolina, just like sweating and, and being under the foggles for hours and doing the math in your head and, and like doing the standard rate turns. I mean, it was really 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 challenging yeah. and yeah i don't i mean I, I don't know but without that base knowledge i i wouldn't be where i am right now so yeah for sure i mean there's also something about not using a flight director too and actually flying the instruments and not just flying a little a little dot or flying a little triangle like actually fly it yourself without that guidance when you're first starting exactly. so you can kind of feel the airplane and see what it's doing exactly because when you even when you get to the airlines no matter what you fly in the sim, they're going to turn it all off and you're going to be flying raw data. So, yeah. so you better learn early or else you're yes. not going to do very well. You need that base knowledge. Yeah. And that, that even goes for private pilot too. Like my one regret is not getting into getting my glider rating first. I wish I would have done it when I was 14. And another regret I have is not flying tailwheel air- aircraft before I flew tricycle gear. Yeah. Because again it's just taking away those like uh training wheels basically and making you really learn how to feel the airplane and use the rudder and and i think that if i were to start all over i would do glider tailwheel then tricycle gear and then and then get into the you know glass cockpits up way later yeah, no, the flight school. So I got my private at Ohio State, and it was all system 172s. We didn't have a tailwheel. But when I went down to North Carolina where uh, Monroe, the airport you were talking about earlier, they encourage all students before they start their private to at least get checked out on a tailwheel so they can go. They have, want them to solo in a tailwheel so they get the basic fundamentals. They get the yes. stick and rudder skills that are required to be a pilot because even when you fly in a tricycle gear, like there are going to be times where you're going to need some killer stick and rudder skills to fly, especially in 135 world. I'm sure the airline world too. You got some crazy crosswinds. You got downdrafts. You got everything yep. going against you. You need to rely on your skills that you have built over a period yep. of time and stick and rudder skills that can save your life. So I think that's definitely a good idea. It is. I agree. And I think that the FAA is finally starting to realize that um, people are losing those skills um, and they're starting to mandate airline training to uh, incorporate more, you know, raw data 
stick and rudder flying because you're, you're getting kids that are pumped through these uh, pilot factories who can't fly a visual approach. And it's like, that's the most basic fundamental thing. And, and if, I mean, look at the Asiana crash. Like, do we really want our country going down the road where we can't fly a basic visual into a giant airport? It just, so if, yeah, exactly. I mean, I would totally recommend to a kid getting into it now to, to just hold off a little bit on the fancy stuff and really try to get the, the base fundamentals down first. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's like, it looks cool that you're flying a glass cockpit to take pictures on Instagram and everything. But yeah. <laughs> like, to be a true and a real pilot, like you need, like it was so beneficial to get your six pack and even going further than what we're talking about right now, like when, like very rarely does every flight perfect, like something's going to happen on your flight. So what happens if you lose your your glass cockpit and you only have your standby instruments that you have no idea how to use or how to read you're an imc like what are you going to do so you need exactly. some kind of basic information because i have had so many times where things have happened where i just go back to my private pilot training or my instrument training where i remembered what i was trained and how i was taught and it saved my life a couple times yes so how are you with a written test and everything did you enjoy those did you do well did you uh do you shepherd air like everyone else does now or um, did you study? they didn't have it then but we had these things called glime books or the red book <laughs> actually which books. was basically the questions <laughs> and the answers yeah. and you would just sit there and memorize them um i think that the written tests are kind of uh i don't know how they are now but back then you you just memorized it so you didn't really get too much knowledge from it right. um so, I mean, I, I always did pretty well on that because it was basically just rote memory. <laughs> yeah, once I rec- once I realized what Shepard Air was, it was the greatest decision of my life. It made the written test yeah. so much easier. Yes. Which is yes. awesome because my private pilot, I didn't, like, Ohio State never told us about Shepard Air, and I don't think they wanted us to know because they actually wanted us to learn all the, the written questions that they could ask, which Probably makes a good it idea. a lot tougher. I'm not going to lie because some of the questions it, they ask are very, like, some can be time consuming and some are not worded the best and the answer choices are really hard. Or yes. Shepard Air like tells you mentions figure thirty two point two, it's always C. It's like, how do you know that, first of all? <laughs> and yes. that yes. is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, written tests are kind of crazy. I have a crazy story for written tests. I was taking my commercial written it was actually at Fly Carolina where we were talking about where you used to flight instructor out of it was flight yes. carolina and um i went there to go take it and 30 questions and the power goes out not only is the power go out but the power <laughs> actually fried the computer that i was taking it on so the computer <laughs> didn't work anymore so we had to call cat's test making system we called them they said he can't take it on that computer so he has to start all over on another computer so i had to start all the way over again and i was taking it on another computer and granted they only have three computers in here so i'm already like 30% out of the way. Like, this has to get done. Like, things aren't going my way. So, I take yeah. it on the second computer, and the power goes out again. I was like 75 questions in, and the power goes out. And oh we call Cats again. It doesn't fry the computer this time, but we call Cats again, and Cats is refusing to let me take this test again. They said that. They think you're cheating. Well, they either think I'm cheating or they think that this is not a trustworthy place to take it. They're like, obviously, something's <laughs> wrong with this place. Like, and I was like, in my head, I was like, yeah, you're right. This place kind of sucks. It wasn't the Fly Carolina at a Monroe. It was the one in uh, South Carolina. I can't remember Rock what the Hill. name. Yeah, Rock Hill. It was Rock yeah. Hill. And I'll never forget this girl. She was 
she was the one that was kind of watching me on the test. She was terrible and she was not helpful at all. <laughs> but, so basically nothing has changed. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Nothing <laughs> has changed. You probably know her too. I don't remember her name, but I called them again and then they said, there's no way it's like, you got to reschedule it. And it was going to take, I was going to try to do the Rock Hill and Monroe and they wouldn't let me do it for like a week. So I was like, crap, this stinks. So I emailed the CEO of Cats Testing and he had me call him within like two minutes of my email being sent. And he made did some magic, called whoever needed to call, and he got me to go back to Rock Hill, and I was able to take my written test. And thanks to Shepard Air, I probably took it in like 15 minutes and got a 99% on it. <laughs> so I had to take oh. that test three times. It took about 10 hours for me to do everything, to drive down there, drive back, to take the test three times, and then I got a 99% in 15 minutes. So We're not being paid by Shepard Air. By we are way. not. But if Shepard Air <laughs> wants to promote this podcast, by all means. <laughs> Oh yeah. So yeah, that was definitely interesting. And it's, but one thing that that can tie into even just being a pilot, like we said earlier, things happen. You, your whole career, you have to learn how to handle adversity and to adapt to a situation because you never know what could happen and you never know what you need to do. Cause I even know you probably in your airline career, I'm sure that you've had, you've seen so many things happen that you never thought could ever happen on an airplane and you had to figure out how to get it done because there's no other option. Yes. Because you're what the final, you're the final say in the airplane, you and the captain. It's like, all right. Yes. So yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You you have to be pretty resilient mentally. Oh, cool. So let's talk a little bit about your time after you got your commercial license. So your new commercial pilot, what do you, what do you do next? Like what was your next step? I stayed in Charlotte and flight instructed um, basically full-time. I did take college classes um, at UNC Charlotte. Um, I was just going to do a business degree. I hated going to class. <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to just like be in the plane all the time. Then I started to like get these little corporate gigs here and there. These like part 91 gigs for these guys um, that own like own their own airplane or whatever. Right. And I started missing classes and being late and my grades started dropping. So I was like, one of these things is going to have to give. So yeah, I just uh, switched schools to Embry-Riddle worldwide, which is like, you can do it all online. And this was the beginning of online schools too. Um, So that way I could just basically do all these corporate flights and, and sit in the FBO and do my schoolwork. So it was much better for me. I don't recommend it to everybody. It's not for everybody. Um, cause you really have to like be self-motivated to get the work done. Some people like to go to a real class and that's cool too. It just wasn't for me. I liked being able to like kind of go at my own pace and take a class here or there. I didn't finish in four years, but you know, it wasn't my top priority, I guess. So yeah, I just basically flight instructed and, and flew, you know, part 91 corporate, um, and did little odd, odd jobs here or there. I flew every day. You know, that, awesome. that there wasn't a tornado or icing, <laughs> I was in the air as much as possible. That's you know? awesome. And yeah. that's uh, that's really cool because like, if you think about it, like, I went to Ohio State, played football at Ohio State. Getting my licenses and ratings were actually very difficult for me because I just didn't have the time where you prioritize being a pilot. And yes. that helped you out probably more than anything because, I mean – being, having a four-year degree is like kind of necessary now. I think they're kind of changing it a little bit. I don't know how yes. necessary it is anymore, which I kind of understand that. Like pilot, like pilots don't have to have a four-year degree because this is a skill that you can learn and maybe you need to know some communication skills and some classes, but a four-year degree right. may not be as relevant as it once was, which is it's, awesome. it's Yeah, it's not as relevant as it once was, but I will put the caveat that you can lose your medical at any time 
You can be fired or furloughed at any time. You probably will actually be furloughed sometime in your career. Um, having a backup plan is pretty necessary in this industry because the odds of making it all the way to the end without a hiccup are pretty slim. Things look really good right now, but I can tell you eight or nine years ago, it did not. Yeah, that's when I was starting to fly and my flight instructors were like legit encouraging me to go another route. They're like, this yes. is the worst. I've been a flight instructor for 10 years. I'm making like $15,000 yes. run away. And now yes. aviation's like, then it's golden hour almost. It's like, this is a ton to fly, paying zone up, we're hiring. It's just a great time to get into it. Yes, it's amazing. It's an amazing time to get into it. And I wouldn't tell a beginner now to get out of it. Um, but what I would say to them is that know the past, know the history, because there's nothing worse than getting someone who's new coming into the flight deck and complaining that, about how they have it because you need to know your audience. Right. Um, because the captains that you'll be flying with may have had some pretty life-changing events happen because of this industry. For sure. And you kind of need to know the history and who you're talking to. That's really important for the new <laughs> the newcomers because this has been a really rough go of it um, for, gosh, since 9-11 basically. And even before that, there was furloughs. But you know, just since 9-11, there are guys just now coming back to the airlines that were furloughed since then. So yeah, you know the whole saying, uh, don't let history repeat itself. It seems like aviation hasn't totally figured that out because they are probably the most cyclical. Yes. Most, it's the biggest cycle I've ever seen. Like things just repeat themselves one after another. They buy a lot of airplanes and they get into debt and they have to furlough. And then all of a sudden they get more money and it just keeps going and going and going. And it's just, yep. it's crazy. And the airline does not care oh, no. about you. No. They care about that. So you need to take care of yourself. And that's where having a backup plan comes into play. My backup plan was uh, to be an air traffic controller back in the in 08, 09, when everything looked horrible. I didn't think I was going to have a job. We were furloughing. I joined the National Guard and the, and the Army National Guard became an air traffic controller. Oh, cool. And started doing that while I finished my degree and had the guard pay for it, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about. Yeah, that's joining the National Guard is not for everybody, but if you have the willpower to do it, you can go to school for free and learn a skill at the same time. I mean, they, they taught me how to be an air traffic controller and paid for my college. So I would not be where I am right now had I not, because I couldn't really afford classes on regional airline pay back then. Oh my gosh, um, no. <laughs> I made like 20, 20 grand or whatever. Yeah. So, but you know, that's kind of what my backup plan was. Um, just go into it knowing that something there is going to be a hiccup, you know, live, live below your means, save, don't go into debt if possible. All that kind of advice is really what I try to tell kids uh, just starting out. Yeah, no, I mean, there seems to be this whole like glamorous pilot life that everyone thinks, oh, he's a pilot. He must make a lot of money. He must have this. <laughs> he must do this. It's like, well, not really. Like you might get some older guys that ha are very senior right now that are making like $350,000 and yes. have Corvettes and private yeah. planes and stuff like this. But like in reality, like you, it's hard to get there. And like you said, it's a cycle. So my dad, he went from in year 2000. He was just became a captain of the 737 for U.S. Airways. They started the, I don't know if you remember Metrojet. Do you remember Metrojet? Yeah, he yep, was a captain for Metrojet. And then what, like four months later, September 11th happens. He gets a 60% pay cut from what he yep. was making. And then he goes to first officer on a Embraer 190. So he yep. went from being a captain 
on a 737 to a first officer on a 190. It's just like, and that was just at a snap of finger. Like you don't know how fast things are going to change the aviation industry. So it's very important, like you said, to save your money. Don't blow it. Like be careful. Don't trust anyone because you never know what could happen. Exactly. I totally agree. U.S. Airways is the only airline, I think, to go through two bankruptcies and still be in business, which is like unheard of. He said for from probably like 2003 to even until the merger with American, he would bring all of his stuff home with him because he did not know if U.S. Airways was going to be an airline the next day. Yep. And that, I mean, and a lot of them did close their doors. Yeah. TWA. I mean, like uh, Pan Am, TWA. You can, there's so many in uh so many that went under all these startups in the mid in the early 2000s oh yeah i mean you just couldn't people just couldn't keep a job so it was really rough and i i hope that this stability lasts for a long time but you know that there's going to be some downturn so you just need to be ready for it yeah something's going to happen and it might not be as bad as what it was but it's also it's gonna affect you in some way it's hard to imagine that it could be as bad as it was but i, <laughs> you know, I don't know as soon as we <laughs> say that the worst thing possible can i know happen, so, yeah. i know so cool so uh we talked about how you were a flight instructor how many hours did you flight instruct for like what how long were you flight instructor before you went on I, to say corporate or regional i flight or instructed for about a year and a half okay um i had 1200 hours this was before the 1500 hour rule okay but it was still very competitive back then for regional it was still like Republic required, I think it was like 3000 total and 500 multi. Like I was oh never going to be able to go to Republic. Um, so it was, it, you know, people complain about the 1500 hour rule, but they need to understand that up until very recently, you had to have at least that to even get looked at to get a beach 1900 job. Right. So, true. so the market kind of dictated the higher hours. It wasn't until kind of the late 2000s to where the 250 hour guys were sneaking into CRJs. Right. And 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 that luckily people will probably not like me saying this but that rule really helped our industry out in the fact that the pay has gone up since then. Oh yeah, I would uh, agree. It may keep you out of the end of the regionals for a little bit, but when you get there it's going to be so much better than it was. Um because of the those our rules. Oh yeah. Um, just your quality of life is going to be so much better. Yes. Yeah. So I had 1200 hours. I was, I remember I was sitting at my flight school, uh, waiting on my next student. And, uh, I forget who, one of my friends was there and he was like, have, have you applied anywhere yet? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I just figured you had to go fly freight or whatever and then get on it. He's like, right. Oh no, I, I think you could probably get on somewhere right now. Why don't <laughs> you just throw in some apps and see what happens? So I applied at a few places and got calls like, um, that week all at once. I mean, it was like three or four different airlines. I was 20 years old. So wow. some of the places when I told them that they were like, no, you have to call us back when you're 21 because you can't even take your ATP written yet. But I, I interviewed at a couple places and ended up at Mesa Airlines, which was back then, I don't know how it is now, but back then was like kind of a rougher around, <laughs> rough around the edges type place. Yeah. Uh, but they had a, they had a Charlotte base and I was like, that's really all I care about is still being in Charlotte. I, you know, that's where my life was. So right. I ended up going there, um, you know, shortly after I turned 20 and getting on the CRJ and being based in Charlotte. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Because you weren't required to have your ATP at all, right? No, you just had to have a commercial. That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, you had to have a commercial. Um, and 
you didn't even get your ATP until you upgraded to captain. That's unless you got it on your own. Right. But that doesn't gonna, make much sense. No. Yeah. Some people did, but I, I didn't. I just had my commercial. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started flying there. Um, I lasted about 11 months before I was, couldn't take it anymore. It was it was just really rough. I mean, I was making like 18, 19 grand and uh, had like eight days off. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was it was pretty rough. I think they've since improved. So, yeah. Well, I think they had to improve because <laughs> there's you can't get much worse than that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, basically in 2007, they had this mass exodus of pilots. I think, like, uh, I think they had 2,000 pilots, like maybe 700 left in one year, including me. Because oh, wow. it, it was just kind of abusing us so much that, and and there was other airlines hiring, so it's like we don't need to take this kind of thing. Oh yeah, I went to Chautauqua, started flying the CRJ there. They had just started up the CRJ program, um, and I was like one of the first pilots to be trained on their CRJ program. What CRJ were you flying? There it was the 200, and it was basically ones that they had pulled out of the desert that Independence <laughs> Air and Com Air used to fly. So they nice. were it was again a really rough operation. Yeah, um, based out of Houston, I was based in Corpus Christi. Okay, <laughs> which I was commuting to from Charlotte, which oh was insane. Gosh. It was two legs, and uh, I mean, I was like racking up the credit card bills on the hotels and. stuff. Stuff. Sometimes I would like uh, sleep in the airport if I could hide somewhere where because you weren't allowed in the airport at night, but we would like find hiding places and sleep in there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, one night, one night I showed up, they locked us out of the airport and it was spring break. So there was no hotels in Corpus Christi. Oh, geez. So I was like, where am I going to go? Like they, this was before like they had uh, Airbnbs and stuff. So I, I literally had no options. So I just like laid down on the bench of the curb of the airport in my uniform and like in the middle of summer and just like slept there this was like not even a big deal but this was how it was at a regional airline back then it was really unforgiving you didn't make enough money to like get nice places and sounds like you barely made enough money to even eat food yeah, we used to donate plasma so that we could pay our uh, our rents, and then we would use the rest to to kind of like eat food or whatever. That's but. crazy, man! It's unbelievable where the industry was and how like not <laughs> glamorous at all to be a pilot to get into yeah. the industry. And there was really no reason. Like, I don't understand why people wanted to be pilots when that was going on. Like, if I it's can, in your blood, it's in your blood, man. Yeah. You can't. You could not have talked me out of it. And yeah, well, that's awesome. Yeah, well, that's kind of probably why we got ourselves in the predicament that we did is people just willing to do that. And me being one of them, I mean, it, it was it was the only way into the industry. I didn't know any other way to do it besides, I mean, you could you could go the military route, which is the best way. I just didn't have the opportunity to do that. Right. So. And I mean, some people, if you already like I already paid for all my my hours, I'm not going to go to the military when they aren't going to pay for any of my training. Like, right. Exactly. My training was already paid for. So yeah. And I did serve in the military, but it was to, to learn a different skill. But but um, really, the Air Force or the Air Guard paying for your training is probably the best way to do it. The Air Force will pay you a ton of money to stay in the Air Force right now, too. I saw articles that they're willing to pay up to like $200,000 a year just to have you come back because they need pilots so bad. Yeah, they're going to have to pay more than that. I mean, Delta, FedEx, United, I mean, they're all paying so much money. And your lifestyle is so much better than the military lifestyle. I mean, I don't fault anyone for staying in or or serving if that's what they want to do, but... The airline life is so cushy. I cannot imagine going back into the army. <laughs> yeah, um, no. 
I haven't done so, either, but I can only imagine how much better the airline life would be. Yeah, it it is. That's For all the problems that it has, it's it's really not a bad job anymore. Yeah, no, it, especially now that the pay's gone up and you're not sleeping on benches in Corpus Christi to catch a plane. <laughs> Can you imagine if your passengers saw you sleeping no, on the they bench? Did. I, I mean, I would shave in the bathroom. Like I, back <laughs> there was no shame back then. It was yeah. kind of like you were so angry that this was what your career, what the career has become. You wanted people to see, and I know that sounds unprofessional now. But when you're in that demeaning position, it's like, you know what? If this is how I am going to be treated as a professional, this is how I'm going to act as a professional. I'm going to shave in the bathroom. It's so different now. But back then, it was it was pretty every, – the, the, the morale was low. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Yeah, well, I'm glad it's changed a lot because now there's a reason for younger pilots to come in other than just wanting just love of aviation. Because, I mean, it took a true love of aviation for you to continue your career and get to where you are today, which is is awesome. And I can commend you for that. It's really cool. Yeah. And and I was one of the lucky ones. Like, like a lot of guys didn't even get to keep their jobs. Like, a lot of them got – so, like, no matter how bad I had it, someone had it worse than me. And I always try to keep that like in my mind because there was a lot of lives ruined back then by this, you know, bankruptcies, divorces. A lot of money was taken out to get their flight ratings and then they couldn't make any money. And then I know a lot of people personally that quit flying and are doing random jobs right now because they went to school for aviation. They put all their money into this. Like they had no idea what else they could do other than this. And this goes back to what you're saying, have a backup plan because they took themselves out of this career and have chosen to go a different route. And now they're kind of paying the price for it. Exactly. And so are the airlines now that can't get pilots because all those guys, you know, could have stayed in and we wouldn't be in the predicament that we are now where no one wanted to be a commercial pilot for an entire decade. And how do you fill that backlog? They're in some deep water trying to, to fill these classes. Yeah. Uh, at the regional level. Mode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad because it's, it's people who are, are just now getting into it are going to have so much better pay packages and bonus packages and they deserve it. I mean, I'm so happy with the way it's, it's finally going. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about the type of training that a pilot has to do, like it might not be as intense or as much as a doctor, but like you put in a similar amount of work as a doctor does to get to where you want to go. Like it takes you a while to build your ratings. You have to build your flight time. So that's kind of like your residency. And then you go to get hired by a regional when you were getting it and you only got like 18 grand. Like how does that make sense at all? And we're the ones that put our lives on the line we're not putting i mean and someone else's too but like we are the ones that pay the ultimate price if we make a mistake especially in training and if you're in the industry long enough you'll have someone close to you that won't make it through so it is a very it's a high stakes game especially early on before the airlines oh and you always need to keep that in mind for sure i remember even when you say high stakes even when i was coming because everything was changing when i was doing my training and getting my first jobs but it wasn't totally caught up yet to where it is now like when i got my job at priority air charter flying cargo 135 you're still getting 20 grand 21 grand to be a first officer for regional it wasn't until like three months after i signed my contract they're like oh cool we'll pay you guys 40 grand 50 grand now i was like sweet thanks (laughs) which still isn't enough but it's so much better (laughs) it's starting somewhere you can actually live off that and yes Getting your first job can be super sketchy in the aviation industry. I flew for an aerial survey company and I, (laughs) I had an engine failure when I was flying a 206, which was 
terrible. It wasn't my fault. The engine was completely gone and it was a terrible experience, but there are other experiences while I was there, but I had no other option. Like this is all I could do to build my time. If I quit, like what would I, it's like you said, what would I do? It was my love of aviation that kept me going in it. And you can call me stupid or call me crazy, but it's what I had to do to get to where I am today. Yep. I think that most pilots that you'll talk to were in that same position. Maybe not so much anymore. I think like you can go to a pretty sheltered 141 program and get through and not have as many. But if you go the part 61 route and the 91 route, it's a different ball game and it's a little more risk. I don't know if risky is the right word, but there's a different amount of risks. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, there, there are shoddy operations everywhere and sometimes that's where you have to start Yep. and you just need to protect your certificate. You need to know when to, to say no. And sometimes that's hard when you're, 19 years old and all you care about is building hours it's hard to say no sometimes but you may feel invincible or whatever but the older you get you're gonna look back and be like i thought i knew everything but i did not and i think the more hours that you build the more you realize how little you know i guess and you get a little more humility those first thousand hours are really the time when you need to be kind of second guessing yourself at all times they're really the you know i don't know exactly the hour range like definitely early on when you think you know more than you do is kind of when it's dangerous and I, just as guilty as anyone else of being at that spot i was told from uh, my mentor that I guess got, he texted me, he goes, Hey man, how many hours you had? I was like, I'm at 750 hours. And I was like, I am pretty much like the greatest pilot ever. It was in my mind. (laughs) I was like, me and my buddy had an engine failure and we both landed it on a mountain. Like we're pretty, I can do this whole flying thing. And then he texts me and he's like, yo, dude, like, I just want to let you know, like, be very careful. 750 hours is like the worst time to be a pilot because you think you know everything, but you don't. And that's when a lot of things can go bad and you don't have the knowledge or the flight time or you don't know what to do in these situations. So that's the best advice I could give to anybody with that, those hours. Exactly what you just said. Yep. Humble yourself because the plane will humble you and you better hope it's something that you can figure out because sometimes it's not. I agree. And I think you're willing to take more chances at that point where I, I I don't know, like I look back at my 19 year old self at some of the things, some of the chances I took that I didn't need to, you don't, you never need to be in the air. The only people that need to be in the air are the military and like maybe like the, the medevac people. Otherwise, no, I, you know, if you're flying corporate or cargo, sorry, you're, you know, it's not going today. That's what that's the frame of mind that you need to be in. And it may cost you some jobs, but I think you'll, at least you'll be alive. Well, it's like you said, like the most important thing is your life and your certificate. And it doesn't matter what you do. Like if you crash the plane, it's on you. No matter, like pretty much everything that's ever happened, if you die and you kill other people, it's your fault, pilot error. That's how the industry is. And you need to make sure that you're doing everything to protect yourself, your certificate, and even the people you don't even know, the people around you, because you never know where something could happen. Exactly. I actually had an instance of that today when I was flying. I'm flying a feeder route for UPS in a caravan, and I could only take 2,700 pounds of freight. And they came out and told me it was going to be like 2,900 pounds. And I was like, I cannot take that. Like, you have to take 200 pounds off. And this big old UPS manager started like getting, not really getting in my face, but he was like, yeah. well, you're contracted to do this much. Why can't you do that? I was like, well, if you think about how far I'm flying, I can't take that much weight and have fuel to get here and back. Like, it's not going right. to work. 
And I was like, I'm not taking that weight. You have to take it off. And eventually you had to stand your ground and they did take it off. But you might say like a 19 year old pilot might not have the guts to stick up and stand exactly. up for what's right. So you have to do that in that situation. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's easy to be intimidated by people who can control your career. You might think at the time, oh, well, if I don't do this, it's the end of my career, but it could be the opposite. I'm glad I work at a company where they backed my decision and they were totally on my side on this and they understood why I had the fuel I had, why I had this. I'm out in Nebraska. Like, There's been severe thunderstorms and tornadoes every single day I'm here. It's like I need the fuel to get to where I'm going. (laughs) Right. Yep. Yep. Well, cool. So let's go back to talking about kind of your regional life. So you were at Chautauqua and then didn't Chautauqua get kind of merged with Republic or did they get bought out by Republic? They were under, there was uh, three certificates at the time under Republic Airlines, uh, Shuttle America, Chautauqua and Republic. Um, the CRJ program folded and I was kicked off the airplane to be an FO on the E-170 out of Pittsburgh, Ooh, um, nice. <laughs> which was yeah, I moved. I moved there. It was a cool time. Yeah. I had a good time. Uh, the plane is really cool. It's a, it's a very, it's a very modern airplane. Um, I enjoyed my time on it. Uh, I upgraded um, after six years in the industry, which is also no longer a thing, as far as I know, at the regional level. I think it's way quicker than that now. Yeah, I think uh, it's anywhere um, from two years to even maybe like a year and a half to like three years now, I'd say. Okay, uh, good. Um, that's great. Uh, it took me six. It took some people 10, um, just because that's how it happens. It's all seniority-based. Yep. Um, I took the first available upgrade, which was the Dash 8 Q400. Oh, there you I'd go. I've never flown it before, never flown a turboprop before. Um, it was a really hard program, as it should be, because it was a unforgiving airframe, especially for first captains. I mean, they were really hard on us, but looking back, I'm glad they were um, because we were flying. Uh, we covered Denver and all the mountain flying and also Newark, New Jersey um, and all the Northeast flying. So it was a lot of ice, a lot of high terrain. Even out in the east, we we still flew into like Burlington. So we flew into like some higher terrain airports. Right. Um, four to six, sometimes eight legs a day kind of stuff. Oh yeah. You're tired at the end of that. Yeah. A lot of fatigue, a lot of fatigue, a lot of new, I mean, everyone was new on the airplane. The captains were new. The, a lot of the FOs were new. Some of them came over from Colgan, which was where we got the airplanes from, which was amazing because when you got an FO from Colgan, you knew like that they had flown the airplane before so they could teach you things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) right. Hey, FO. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. And we, we had a lot of really experienced, even the FOs that weren't that experienced came with a good attitude. Like they could have gone to the 170, but they chose the Dash 8 for whatever reason. And to me, that automatically, I give you my respect. Like yeah. you're either a maniac or like, <laughs> like, why would you do that? I always like asked them and they always, you know, had their reason for going to the prop. That's awesome. But, um, but yeah, if you if again for like new people, if you have a chance to fly a turboprop before you get into a jet, take it. It teaches you so much that a jet doesn't. Down low in the weather all the time, uh, more legs a day. You learn how to manage fatigue. It can do cooler stuff. Like it can land shorter. It can. You can, can have a lot of fun on a turboprop. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Going into DCA um, in the little runways there and like doing the visuals that, that jets can't do. I mean, it was just a fun time. Like we had a really good time. Um, the operation maybe didn't run that well, but the camaraderie that we had at that airline was 
really cool. Like it kind of made you forget that you weren't making any money. And but yeah, so I flew that two years as captain and I was going to be captain on the 170 because they were phasing the dash eights out. Um, I was in class on the 170 when I got the call to go to the major airline that I'm at now, which was insane and totally unexpected. How did that process kind of play out? If you don't mind me asking, like, how did, did you apply? Did you get a call? Was it a flow through program? Like what was, uh, what it looked like? Public has no flow through. Actually flow through didn't exist then. Um, the way it does now. Um, I basically applied at the major airlines and then some low cost carriers. Again, it was like the very beginning of the hiring that's taking place right now. So I didn't feel like I had a lot that set me apart from anybody else. I mean, there's thousands of regional pilots with four-year degrees, you know, clean records and stuff. So I was just like, you know, I'll probably be here another five to 10 years, whatever. I was just getting comfortable, not really doing anything special to get on at these places, just updating my apps, basically. And I get this email out of the blue and it's, it's like, hey, we'd like to invite you to do this video interview. And I was like, this has to be a joke. Like, there's no way. Totally caught me by surprise. So I started freaking out and like trying to prep as quickly as I could to do this video interview. Um, and because they only gave me like four or five days to prep for it. And I wasn't had done no interview prep because like I said, I thought it was going to be like five to 10 years before anyone even looked at me. So I did the... I, it was like this thing online and they ask you que- this like computer asks you questions and then it tapes you or it like records you. Um, Interesting. So really awkward. Um, yeah. And hard to <laughs> pre- prepare for, I guess. For sure. That's I always thought it was like a face to face, like a Skype interview. It was like Skype, but with no human on the other end. <laughs> that was, is super awkward. It was really awkward. And uh, I, when I turned the computer off, I just kind of sat there in silence and was like, that was like horrible. And they're never going to, they're never going to call. And like, there You're goes like, my whole career. Yeah. At least I tried. Right. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> like, like at least I had the chance, you know? Um, and then the next day they're like, Hey, do you want to come in for a face to face? And I, I was just like, are you, are, did you watch my video? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Like what are, what is happening right now? So yeah, I, I, I had like a month to prep for that. So I did professional interview prep through Emerald Coast, highly recommended Emerald Coast Aviation, um, in aviation interviews. If you have an interview coming up, I highly, highly recommend that company. Again, I'm not being paid by them. They just, I just felt like they did a really good job. I did the interview prep, bought a new suit, did the whole, got a haircut, all that stuff. Um, got a haircut, you shaved? I did shave. I shined you shave my in the airport. In. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the company that I got hired for, their interview was basically just like a face-to-face with two pilots. And they just kind of chat like we're chatting right now, really. And it was uh, super easy, easy going, not stressful at all. That's and awesome. I ended up getting hired. And uh, never forget getting – I was driving down the road in Charlotte actually going to visit my dad. And the director of operations of the airline called me to to ask me if I wanted to accept the job. And I almost wrecked my car. <laughs> I couldn't even like, I couldn't think. I mean, all I heard him say was like, welcome, you know, welcome to the airline or whatever. And after that, it was just, it's all just like a blur. 
I'm legit like getting goosebumps for you because I can like understand how hard of a process it was for you. And like I can, my process is not nearly as, or my road is not, hasn't been nearly as hard as yours, but I know whenever I get that call, it's going to be life changing and it's going to be like, mama, I made it, you know? Like, yeah, I'm here. exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm here. I'm I a know. real pilot now. I know. I, I, I really almost wrecked my car. It was the craziest uh, thing ever. I actually had to like write them an email to ask what he said to me because he gave me like information about what happens next, but I wasn't even listening. Right. So I was like, oh <laughs> man, so cool. it, was, it, it was so cool. Um, yeah. So then I just went to school. Uh, I had to wait six months for a class date. So I continued to find a dash, but then I went to um, E170 class while I was waiting on a class with them because I didn't know how long it was going to take. A lot of times airlines will have classes and then they'll just like cancel them. So even though I had the the offer, I was still kind of playing it safe. Don't burn any bridges. Exactly. Well, yeah, I, I finished my type rating on the 170 and left really shortly after that. So they may have been a little bit upset about that, but it, it really was beyond my control. But at the end of the day, when if they think of when if they're in that position, like what would they do if a major airline called them and was like, hey, you want to come fly? They'd be like, yep, see you. All right. See you guys. Yeah, and even exactly. your chief pilot would be like, "All right, guys, I'm out. Uh, there's no, no my chief pilot was anymore." Great. I, I, my chief at Republic was amazing. She, uh, she knew from the beginning um, that I had an interview. She actually helped me get the day off. I mean, oh, nice. That's chief, awesome. You know, pilot's chief pilot. I have no complaints about that. I think that like some higher ups in the company may have been a little upset that I left right after I got a $30,000 type rating, but but I didn't know that I was going to have the class um, date, so. I can't just put my career on hold because of it. So, so yeah, I left there, went straight to an. So I finished that typewriting class, went to another typewriting class, and I got assigned to MD80 based in Dallas. The Mad Dog, which <laughs> I was not expecting. <laughs> what plane um, did you think you were going to get assigned? Airbus or or uh, seven three? You know, yeah. um, actually, is not Aren't they getting rid of most of their MD80s, or they still have plans for them for a while? They always say that they're getting rid of them, and and they just like. Cockroaches, they just kind of like, yeah, they're just driving around Dallas probably till we die. <laughs> they'll still be there. I mean, some of them were like from literally before I was born, they were being made. So it's a really solid airplane, and I'm glad I got to fly it. It's really old school. A lot of the captains have been on it since I've been born. So, I mean, the knowledge there is just so deep. You know, you're flying with a guy who was flying since you were literally born. And yeah. Probably flying um, that plane since you were born the too. Same like a decent chance. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them too, like flew flight engineer on the seven two or uh, the DC ten or you know all these cool airplanes and the guys they flew with flew like DC threes and stuff. So it's like they had this like really cool history. It's neat to like a lot of them flew like F fourteens and F four. Oh, cool, that's so cool. And so like getting to like fly with those guys has been like a real cool opportunity um just it's an old school culture there but um it's a little different than the regionals and that'll change as as more young people come in but and it's amazing like the wealth of knowledge that you can have sitting next to you and how how much they can teach you and the th- it's kind of on you like as being a first officer as a person sitting next to them to as we said earlier to kind of humble yourself to let them teach you to not think that you <laughs> yeah. know everything it's like this guy's been flying for 40 years like let me listen to him and see what he has to say 
if you go into a, a cockpit in an MD-80 at this airline and you're not humble, they'll humble you pretty quickly. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's a good thing. I mean, they, they, that needs to happen one way or another. So I mean, might as well be in a control controlled situation where they know what they're doing. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. I mean, you you, you want to be humble, but only to a point because your job as a first officer is to be assertive to a point. If that makes yeah. sense. I mean, you you don't want to be so intimidated that you don't do your job and call out, call the captain out when, when needed, if that makes sense. But but you you don't want to go in there with the attitude of I have 6,000 hours and I was a captain on a dash eight and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) It's like, okay, they're not going to be really receptive to that. You just kind of want to go in there like willing to learn and, but also assertive at the same time. I mean, you're still an airline pilot. You're still, your job is to still be assertive and you know fix problems when they arise, no matter whose feelings it's going to hurt. So there's a balance there. People make mistakes. Like you fly long hours, you're not going to be on your eighth hour of duty. You're not going to be thinking as well as you were in your first hour. So it's definitely good to have someone to have sit next to you that actually knows what they're talking about, can stick up for themselves and stick up for the plane and the people in there. Definitely. Yeah. My best first officers were the ones that knew how to frame questions so that it didn't make me feel like an idiot, but that, <laughs> that were also like, Hey man, like this is wrong or whatever, you know, you know, you kind of have to like be able to be a chameleon to any uh, type of personality. And it's not always going to work out either. I mean, it, sometimes I've had to remove myself from a trip before because it wasn't a safe environment anymore because of how the personalities just weren't jiving. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean that's going to happen too. Like, and yeah. that's probably you made the safe decision and the probably the proper decision to do that. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. So going back to you being a captain a little bit, I know a lot of my friends are getting into being going to regionals and they're going to be a first officer for the first time because I mean they've all the people I know flown like 135 freight single pilot. What can you recommend to someone that's just getting an FO job, whether it's a regional, whether it's corporate, like what should their mindset be going in? I know we kind of talked on a little bit how you need to be assertive, but also be humble and just try to mess with them. But like, is there anything in specific that you would want to say to them? Or do you think we covered it already? Well, I touched on some of the things before is like, number one is always live within. This is like not having to do with the cockpit, but like your own life. Like live within your means because something is going to ha- like always c- try to stay like one step below where you are in the in the food chain if that makes sense financially. Um, know the history. Like I said before, don't go into the flight deck complaining that oh I'm only gonna f- my flow through is gonna take six years. It's because that guy that you're sitting next to, he's probably been there a long time. Maybe not, but you may be talking to a guy who took 10 to 15 years to upgrade and maybe right. a guy, maybe a guy that was furloughed or that got a divorce because he was furloughed. So you really need to understand the hist at least the recent history of the industry and, and be receptive to that and kind of just like ask questions of the guy. Don't tell him how it is. If that makes sense. Like don't go in there uh, saying how much, you know, or whatever, just kind of sit like, have like a more humble attitude. Um, be willing to learn. You're gonna have. You're gonna learn so much from every captain that you fly with, and you're gonna learn what not to do by some of the captains that you fly with. And just kind of make that mental notes of what kind of captain that you want to be. Like that whole six years, I was basically that was like forming what kind of cockpit I wanted to run. 
basically just go in there with a humble attitude, but be ready. Like airline training is some of the, they call it the fire hose for a reason. I mean, it's going to be, it's probably the toughest training that you're going to do, especially the first one. If you've never flown a jet before, never been in a sim, never been in 121, you need to go there with a really serious attitude. You need to be ready to study. A lot of guys just think it's going to be a, a 24-7 party. And it will be later, but like the first class that you do, you really need to like be ready to buckle down and be pretty serious about it. And get your life in order to the point where it's like you don't have the outside stresses. Like Try to manage your family life and your outside stresses so that you can go just focus on the training. Um, and then to bounce off that, like when you're in your first training, you're going to meet lifelong friends. Like I have friends that are friends for life from my first Mesa class. Have a good time with them. You're going to make memories and stuff. Um, even though it's a serious situation and you're trying to like do well, take some time off on the weekends and like have a good time with your friends because they're going to be around for a long time, your whole career. You're going to know that know these people. Oh, for sure. It's kind of like you're forming a brotherhood. Like you're going through the same things together at the same time. Yes. So you're going to be with them no matter what. So you might as well enjoy it a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's that's yep. great advice. I, I'm going to be an FO eventually going up in that. So I can really appreciate you giving me that advice. And like you said, learn from the people you're talking to and learn from the people that have done this before you to so that you can be the best pilot that you can be. So we yes. appreciate you with that advice. I know we never talked about any crazy stories from when you're a flight instructor. Do you want to, or any stories that you really want to tell or do you, nothing that's really like? Well, no, I, yeah, I had um, I was I was a 19 year old flight instructor with this uh, gentleman who had just bought a Cessna 150, um, and it was just I believe it was our first lesson that we were in the 150 that he had just bought, um, and we were doing uh, it was he was a private pilot student, really sharp guy. He, he you could tell it was like a self studier. He knew more than I had taught him in ground school, which was amazing because yeah. we got in this situation and it really helped. But um, we were uh, south of Monroe Airport over this gigantic field um, practicing engine out procedures. Basically, I pulled the power back, told him to find a landing space. So he lines up for this gigantic field. He was going to make it. It looked really good. He was really sharp. I said, OK, let's go around. So he puts the power back in and we get about maybe 1500 RPMs of just like violent shaking, barely any power. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, oh, that's that's all it's got. I was like, and granted, we had just gone down low over this field. So we were pretty low, maybe like 200 feet or so. And we were just not getting power out of this thing. And we were, it was enough power to do about a 200 foot per minute descent oh, man. Um, at slow flight. So it was, I was like, I took the plane and I was like, man, we're going down in this field. Just went into like crisis mode. Like everything was in slow motion. All my training kicked in, all the adrenaline kicked in. We weren't talking to anybody, but he ended up getting a hold of uh, Charlotte Approach and they got a radar ping off of us. So they got another airplane to come over and circle overhead so that they could get a constant radar ping. This is all my student who's not even a private pilot puts in 7700 in the transponder. <laughs> I'm like, where did you learn that? Anyway. <laughs> how did you know? Yeah, how did yeah. you know that? So I'm just like basically circling, trying to figure out what part of the field I want to come down on because it was kind of like hilly field. I was like, well, there's a road beside it. So I start lining up on this road and roads are really kind of an optical illusion. Like when you're on the ground, it looks like it might be okay to land on, but there really are a lot of hazards. Like once you are coming down on it, like the curves, the power lines, the cars. So 
at the last second, I was like, you know what? I'm, we're just going to land in the field. So it was like this soybean field that had just been uh, seeded. So it was like flat. And we just touched right on down, like no problem. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. I, I, yeah, exactly. It was like no big deal. It was just like any other grass landing. Yeah, that's um, a grass field landing. Let's go around. <laughs> it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I swear in like five minutes, there's newest helicopters. It, it was probably more than that, but like there's newest helicopters overhead. There are like six or seven rescue vehicles going over this farmer's field at full blast at this little tiny 50. Like, I mean, they got there really quick, which is nice. But we didn't really need to like ruin this dude's crop, right? Um, <laughs> he actually the farmer came out too. He wasn't really upset. He was just kind of like, "Wow, this is exciting." Um, uh, so the funny part of the story is like uh, I was supposed to meet my dad at a local restaurant um, where we always ate on Wednesday nights, and I called him on his cell phone and I was like, "Hey, dad, I'm going to be a little late for dinner." He go, I swear to God, he goes am I watching you on the news right now? Because <laughs> news helicopters were filming me on my cell phone pacing around the 150. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, hilarious. Dad, that's like, just don't worry about it. I'll be there in a little while. And I, that was basically it. I got like a ride to the restaurant. And the next day we flew the airplane out. Um, we figured out what was wrong with it and flew it out. So Did the FAA or anything have to check it out? They did. They They came out with a mechanic and me and my student and the owner of the of the flight school and and the mechanic fixed the airplane. I mean, it was a a washer had clogged the air intake. There was nothing that we did wrong. It was just like it got somehow lodged in behind the little filter, so it got kept getting sucked up against the the air. Um, so there really was nothing we could have done. So all I did was remove it and the FAA was like, okay, cleared to fill it out. And like, we walked about 500 feet to make sure there was no ditches offered the farmer. Like, do you want us to make an insurance claim? And he was like, ah, oh, no big deal. So that's awesome because there are some farmers out there. I've heard horror stories about how they, they just act like you've ruined their crop. You ruin everything. Like they want money for everything, like to buy new equipment and all this stuff. So you got very lucky with that. Yeah, we did. I think that he had just, uh, seeded. So we didn't really ruin anything. That's um, good. but he was just a good old Southern good old boy and that's good he basically said that the the excitement was enough of the payment so <laughs> i'm on news yeah and north carolina is is good for being polite i don't think it would have been the same way if it was in different parts of the country but yeah though it, that's when you tell me a story this brings me back up to when i i had a full engine failure when i was flying in west virginia with my buddy and when we landed it was like kind of the exact opposite like we landed uphill on a mountain that used to be a lake, like on top of this mountain used to be a little pond, like a retention pond. And they filled it in like three months ago. So that's crazy. in the first part that like, we just happened to be there at the right place, right time. We were at the perfect glide distance from when it happened. Like it was all like, it was meant to be there. It was like, God was looking out for us. Like, here you go, land here. You're fine. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. Like it, It was like you said, it was like, it was just like a normal landing. We put flaps in, we landed, we touched down. The ground was so wet, we just like went straight into the ground. We probably stopped like <laughs> 30 feet from two huge pressurized oil tanks. So I think the ground was wet. And But what's opposite from your story is this was in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Yeah. The, it took probably an hour and a half for an ambulance or a fire truck or anything to come out. We got picked up by these this random mountain family that wow. lived in West Virginia. And they came and pick us, picked us up, took us in their home, fed us food, like took care of us. It was awesome. Oh, wow. It was 
That is it really was really cool, cool but yeah, I mean, it's amazing how it all happened. And the FAA came out and they said, yeah, there, I mean, there's nothing you can do. They tried to turn the prop. The prop just was locked and seized. It wouldn't go anywhere. And they're like, you guys landed this plane like the only place possible to land. Like, good job. <laughs> and then Jeez. they're like, this would be good on your resume. Like, don't, don't be afraid to put this on there. It's like oh, people yeah. like to see this. I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> good interview stories. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's so. another piece of advice. When things like this happen in your career, write them down in a notebook so that when it comes time to interview, you don't have to rack your brain. You just have it all written down because you're going to need all these stories and stuff. Yeah, for, these for sure. <laughs> I, would definitely, I have tons of stories for interviews. I need to start writing them down before I go into them because I might forget <laughs> some of them. Because you you're probably so nervous. You have stuff you want to say, but you can't remember if you said that or you want to say this or this or that. Exactly. So yeah, that's, exactly. a, that's a good point. Now, that's crazy, man. I never, that, when did that, what year did that happen? Um, it would have been like, uh, 2005 probably. Okay. So I would have been a sophomore in high school. So I would have been in, it was on the news. I have the newspaper clipping. It was That's uh, hilarious. Yeah, it was, it was wild. So. That's so cool. I mean, I'm glad you're okay. Like that's crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the thing. If like, we always practice over this field on purpose in case we lost an engine and it paid off. I mean, if you're constantly thinking about where you're going to land, it's really not a big deal. Right. I mean, I fly gliders now and it's basically like every flight's an emergency. I mean, <laughs> pretty much. no, know? seriously, every flight is an emergency. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, ever since my engine failure, I know that I have like even flying a PC 12 or a caravan, like I'm always looking like, okay, that field might be big enough. That road looks okay. And yep. all that kind of stuff. So it's, yep. it's That's crazy. A good mindset to have definitely. All right, Kurt, I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. You ready for these? Yes. All right, here we go. What is your favorite airplane? Oh my gosh. Uh, P-51. Favorite airport you've ever flown to? It could be either commercial or GA. I would, I would say Willgrove in Charlotte. Okay. Favorite aviation Instagram account that you follow? I am the drizzle. I am the drizzle. <laughs> Do you prefer long trips or short trips? As far as the days go? Uh, let's say as far as like time goes. So, like, do you like four-hour legs or shorter legs? Oh, I like longer legs. I like L.A. to San Fran. Okay, nice. Would you rather fly over cities, mountains, country, or beaches? Uh, mountains. Do you like Piper or Cessna? S- Cessna, but I don't, I don't mind Piper. What's a plane that you've always wanted to fly but never had the chance to? DC-3, which I may one day. All right, what is your dream airplane other than a DC-3, say, like, uh, for an airline that you want to fly? A350? I like, I'm an Airbus guy now. I'm on the Airbus. It's a very comfortable airplane to sit in. It doesn't fly as well as a Boeing, but who cares? I'm, I'm getting paid to sit in a uh, gigantic cockpit. All right, here's the last one. What's the one thing you always have to have on you while you're flying? Probably my iPad. I know when I, even right now, just for flight, if I don't have for flight with me, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> I mean, we use iPads as our electronic flight bag but i also use it um when i'm commuting because i commute to new york for work so being in the back of the plane that much i would die without my ipad all right kurt let's get into your instagram page a little bit let's talk about um did when you first started it did you start it with the intention of having ten thousand followers or did you just start it just to post stuff you wanted to post or what was the reason behind starting this instagram page i basically started it to have an account to follow meme accounts with my buddy kevin whose name is i am the drizzle he's also a pilot at the airline that i work at and a good friend of mine kept trying to talk me into getting it but i didn't want to get any more social media 
because I was already, you know, Facebook already was like, I was always, I, I didn't need another excuse to have my face and my phone basically. Right. But one day I just checked it out and I was, I started finding that there was this community, this aviation community there. And I was like, this is cool. Um, so I started just taking pictures with my iPhone of stuff at work or whatever, and slowly started getting followers and we get comments from strangers. And I'm like, this is so weird. I'm like, why does anybody care about this? Like dash eight, who, who are these people? And well, they're aviation geeks and they, and I started to realize that Instagram is like an amazing tool to have, you know, communication through the aviation community, basically. And I started, I think about, it's probably been about two years now. I think it really took off when I got on the MD-80 because it was, I was really the only person posting what in the United States, like posting pictures of MD-80 flight decks. And a lot, I, a lot of like av geeks and young kids were just like blown away by how antiquated an airplane is that's still flying around, I guess. So there was a lot of interest in it, um, in my account. I mean, I don't take like good pictures or anything, but I just like try to keep it interesting and try to add some humor into it. People who have been following me for a while, they, they basically like have their own inside jokes now just based on like stuff I've posted. So yeah, I mean, it allowed me to meet so many cool people that I never would have like I have so many friends that I've met on Instagram that I've met in real life with. I've gone flying in their airplanes. I can basically go on any layover now and know somebody that owns or rents an airplane and get in it with them, which is so cool. I mean, it's like, how else could you have done this without Instagram? So yeah, and, and I guess the point of my page, it, it started out as just me really wanting to look at meme pages and I still use it for that. As far as like what I post, I try to, I wouldn't say I'm like an inspirational page. Like some of these pages are like a little over the top, um, which we kind of poke fun at a little bit. Uh, it's nothing against those pages. Like they have their place too, but we try to like me and Kevin try to give like an honest viewpoint of what being an airline pilot is like and what our personal lives are like too, sort of like we try to interject like what our lifestyle is like so that people getting into it can kind of see that it's not all, hey, I'm flying an A380 in Dubai and you know, I have like five cars and all these hot chicks or whatever. It's like, no, I live in Ohio and I live in an apartment and I drive a Toyota Corolla. Like that literally is my life. And I just like airplanes. I like flying gliders and here's some pictures of it kind of thing. So I can respect that. I like the the aviation Instagram community. I realized that like when I first started, I did it. I was a, I re, just reposted images and then I quickly realized that I got exactly. really bored of that. And I was like, I need to actually like give something back to like, I want to like be involved with this. I don't just want to repost. So I started doing more of my own personal life and I started getting more followers from that. And I don't have the many followers you have, but it's, it's not really about like qual quantity of followers. You know, it's about the yes. community that you build within yes. your own page and what you can do with that and how you can inspire people. Like you said, but like, don't go too over the top to where like no one believes you like right. be real show people like the bad side, the good side, what your life like just give them a real look at what yes. life's like like i want to know like someone might want to be a pilot at a major airline they go to your page and if you're giving them filling them with stuff that's not realistic then you're not giving a real outlook of what they could do with this job like let them know what they're and we're not trying into. to sell anything we're not trying to make money off these kids like they're a pet peeve right. of mine is these accounts that are huge that are trying to sell knowledge and it's like 
you don't need to sell a book on how to become a pilot. It's on Google. It's you can DM one of us. And if you have a specific, well thought out question, I will answer you all day long, as long as you're respectful. And that happens all the time. Every day we get, you know, we answer questions um, all the time. What bothers me is that when somebody basically spams these accounts as, hi, I'm, I want to become a pilot. What do I do? It's like, I'm not going to do the work for you. If you really want it, you will figure it out yourself if that makes sense. Like For you sure. really need to be self-driven to get to where we are. Like we said earlier, it's not as bad as what it was when you're going through it. But even now, like you got to build those 1500 yes. hours somehow. You got to have some kind of self-determination. You're not going to get there easy. I think I can't find the post right now. But my favorite post I think that I read of yours was when you talked about the Airbus, how it makes a mediocre pilot <laughs> or it makes like a bad pilot mediocre and an excellent pilot yeah. mediocre. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a captain. I think, and I was just like, that's so true. Like, it doesn't matter how good of a pilot you are. This airplane just makes everyone equal, basically. Except for Sully. Like, he had some crazy stuff going on that day. He respects him for what he did in the Airbus. All right, Kurt, I have one more question for you. And it is, if you could go back in time and you could start over from square one, you could choose corporate, you could choose regional, you could choose the same route you did now, would you do it all again? I think that I would still want to be a major airline pilot for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's the best job for me. It's the most money that I can make. And it's a lot of time off, get to go cool places, fly cool airplanes. I like the lifestyle, but I think that early on, had I known about gliders when I was 14, I would have sold a glider at 14. Um, I would have got my glider license when I was 16. And I think I would have flown more tailwheel airplanes early on had I, had I been able to now I'm kind of like now that I'm finally at the point in my career where I can like have some financial flexibility I'm getting back into it which is super cool but I think that I would have done that as a teenager another thing that I probably would have done is finish my degree a little earlier and joined the air guard and flown in the air guard as well as the airlines I don't regret joining the army I loved it I loved the my friends there and everything. I, I don't regret it, but I think that an air guard pilot slot is probably one of the most valuable things you can get to get to a major airline. So those, those two things I probably would have changed. Otherwise I'm, I'm super fortunate to be where I am right now. It's awesome to hear uh, your kind of outlook on how everything's gone, even though it might not have been the most glamorous or the most glorious path, but you're still happy with where you are today. And you kind of understand like the hard work work that needs to be put in to get to where you are. So that's really cool. And yeah, Air National Guard, like kudos to those guys. Like you said, I know a lot of people, well, I don't know a lot of people, but I know some people that have gone that route and are sitting left seat, right seat at a, at a major airline and really enjoying it. So yeah, it's really the best option because you can do both at the same time. You can build seniority in an airline and fly an Air Force aircraft in your hometown or whatever. So it's really the best way to go. Uh, before we go, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell the people where they can find you on Instagram, what your page name is. and uh... It's uh, Stabilizer Motion. It's Stabilizer underscore motion. And basically what that is is something that the MD-80 shouts at you constantly. But yeah, Stabilizer Motion on Instagram. And that's really the only social media I have. So hit me up on there and DM me if you have any questions. Sounds good, man. That is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate it. I think your conversation, our conversation is going to be very beneficial for anyone that just wants to know what it's like 
what it was like, like how our what we're going through right now is actually not that bad and how what previous pilots had to do to get to where they are today, a lot worse than how we have it now. And it's really cool to see that you stuck with it and you are still doing it and you are, you have the job of your dreams right now. So, man, that's awesome. And I thank yeah. you for that. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. I enjoyed yeah, man, it. No problem. I'll, uh, have a good one. All right. You too. Yep. Thanks. And that is a wrap for episode number eight. Thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to these podcasts. And as I said earlier, we're going to be doing a giveaway with a wing boss hat. All you need to do is follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our podcast, and leave us a review on our iTunes page, and you'll be entered to win a wing boss hat. Thank you so much again. We really appreciate everything you guys have done for this community, and we can't wait to see where this goes. I hope you guys have a great week of flying, and we'll see you next week with a brand new podcast.